Right, if you would turn uh, back to 1 Peter 2, the same chapter we were in this morning. And now down in verse 18, 1 Peter 2 and verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would bless the reading of it and the study of it tonight. You would use it to challenge our hearts and open our eyes to your truth. And we thank you for the many blessings you give us each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We looked this morning back up uh, verses 9 through 12, and the main theme of that passage was to remember who we are as God's people, uh, to say no to the temptation to sin, and by doing so to be a testimony to those who do not yet know the Lord. And right after verse 12, uh, Peter begins a new section of the book where he shows us what that looks like in practice. And he takes several particular applications. He certainly doesn't exhaust the topic, but he gives uh, several real-life applications of what this would look like. Uh, Verses 13 through 16, what would a good conduct look like in the way you relate to government? Uh, Verses 18 to 25, uh, what does good conduct look like in the face of suffering? Even into chapter 3, the first seven verses, what does good conduct look like in a marriage between a wife and a husband? And verses 8 to 12 of chapter 3, what does good conduct look like in the church family and even towards everyone in general? So we're going to choose one of those tonight and see how Peter flushes those out. And this idea of being a good testimony, having a godly conduct, Uh, in order to uh, be a good testimony to others. And we're going to look at verses 18 to 25. He begins verse 18 by addressing servants, uh, and uh, these would uh, also be called slaves in other part of Scripture. And even right there, we have to be careful that we don't read American slavery back into the first century. Uh, More often, those who were slaves in the first century Uh, were either born into slavery or they had voluntarily put themselves in slavery to pay a debt. Uh, Some estimate this could have been half the population. And so 
this was likely a substantial part of the church. Uh, but they, they would often be taken care of, sometimes even paid for their work. <clears throat> and just the fact that people would voluntarily subject themselves shows that oftentimes the conditions uh, were adequate for them. Uh, even in some cases, the servant might have lived in the home and uh, helped with domestic responsibilities, could even purchase their freedom. Uh, still, a major difference is that once you became a servant, then it was involuntary, and uh, that they were very vulnerable. There wasn't a lot, always a lot of recourse for the way that they were treated. And so God has an instruction here for servants. Uh, in to, Verse 18 says, to be subject to their masters, to place themselves under their masters. Same word used earlier for how we're to interact with the government. Uh, and in chapter 3, how wives are expected to uh, place themselves under their husbands. And servants are supposed to do this with all fear or, or reverence, respect, uh, possibly towards the master, but, but uh, even more so towards the Lord, knowing what uh, God expects and afraid to displease God. And then God adds uh, on the end of verse 18, a qualification, uh, not a qualification, but a clarification here, not only to the good and gentle, the good master, the gentle master, he would be considerate and equitable and fair. Uh, he may be a master who's thoughtful, who gives some grace when the servant is sick or when he needs to help with a family member or maybe provides some downtime or allows him to leave for a family event. Maybe he gives him decent food and allows him a comfortable place to sleep. And that would be fairly easy to submit to, but it's not just to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. Uh, the forward is the crooked, the perverse. Uh, the word here is uh, scolios, and you can hear scoliosis tied to that. And scoliosis is something that is not straight in your spine. Here's someone who is not morally straight, someone who is perverse or crooked, harsh, cruel. This is the master that gives you the stale bread and the moldy cheese and makes you sleep out in the stable and doesn't care what the weather is like. That's a lot more difficult to submit to, isn't it? And yet the Lord says, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. Now, anytime we come to Scripture, we are looking for the application for our lives and our, our present circumstances. And in this particular verse, there's not a direct application for anyone that I'm aware of because no one is a slave in the same sense that these people were. Uh, there would be perhaps an indirect application to employment. Uh, you have an earthly master or employer, and as long as you choose to retain the position, you put yourself under their authority. Uh, you actually, though, probably have more means of recourse than servants in the first century. You can file a complaint, likely, about your employer. You can find a different opportunity. Uh, but if you don't do one of those two, you, you choose to submit. You don't do something a different way than you were instructed because you think you know better. Uh, you don't talk badly about your employer to others. Uh, the one exception here would be if you're told to do something wrong, to lie to a customer, or to, to alter the books to make the company 
look better. Other than that, you, you submit to your earthly master. And there's no exception here. You can't say, well, you don't know what my supervisor is like. Because the Lord says here, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. We can tell, though, in this passage that there's a much even broader application than that. And we can see that because we'll get to this, but later in the passage, the example that Peter uses is the example of Christ suffering on the cross. And that's not a servant-master example. And so the, this is a broader topic. This is not limited to work and servants and slaves. The entire passage is really about suffering and Peter uses one example of servants to get into the topic, but then the entire topic is broader than that. How do we endure unjust suffering? Uh, any type of injustice where we have no type of recourse. Uh, we encounter situations sometimes where uh, we are suffering unjustly. Uh, maybe a customer who mistreats us and is rude and inconsiderate, doesn't control their tongue. Maybe vandalism to our property and there's no evidence uh, where the perpetrator can be caught. Maybe things like phone scams that waste your time and take advantage of people. And that's injustice, isn't it? Or may maybe uh, uh, people who mock us for our faith. Maybe family that takes advantage of you or talks badly behind your back. All of these and much more are examples of unjust suffering. And Peter is going to tell us here under inspiration how to maintain good behavior when we suffer unjustly. And so in verse 19, first we remember God in the midst of our suffering. He says, this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God a conscience here, when you see that word in Scripture, it can mean either conscience in the sense of uh, your innate uh, feeling of accountability, or it can be consciousness, uh, awareness of God, and really either of those would fit the context here. Uh, you choose to endure suffering because your conscience tells you that's what God wants you to do, or because you are conscious of God and what He expects. And so you live this way because that's what God wants if a man, because of conscience toward God, endure grief, this word enduring is, is bearing up, sustaining weight, not succumbing under the pressure. And this reminds us that, that suffering is difficult. Enduring suffering is not sitting at the doctor's office and having to wait 10 extra minutes. It's not being stopped at a traffic light longer than you would like. This is real burdensome weight that you have to endure. The grief here, this is often translated sorrow or heaviness, legitimate trials that you didn't do anything to merit, but they're real, they weigh on you, they're burdensome. And when you endure those with a conscience of God, with a thinking about God and what God wants for you, how he wants you to live, Peter says, this is thankworthy. Literally, this is grace. It's, it brings God's grace or favor. It's commendable for us to endure suffering with a mindset focused on the Lord. And then he gives an interesting contrast in verse 20. What glory is it? What credit is it if, when you are buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? Uh, being buffeted is the idea of being beaten or mistreated. This word is used about Christ 
in the Gospels. Uh, 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 they, they spit in his face and, and buffeted him and smote him with the palms of their hands. Uh, when you're mistreated, here's the first example, uh, first part of the contrast. When you're mistreated for your faults, uh, this is a paraphrase, a, a good paraphrase. Uh, if we were going to read it literally, it would say, when you are sinning and suffering, you endure it patiently. But when, you're, when you're being buffeted for your faults, for your sins, and you endure it patiently, what credit is that? What impact does that make on other people? If you have to go to court and pay the traffic ticket that you earned for going 20 miles over the speed limit, and unbelievers in your office, you're complaining to them, I'm suffering. What are they thinking? You deserved that. There's no credit there. You deserve the inconvenience. You deserve the fine. Uh, if you do a bad job at work, you're inattentive and you're lazy and it costs the company money and you get some type of consequence for that, you're not suffering unjustly. Uh, you are suffering because of bad behavior. And so Peter is saying that there's, there's no credit to suffer for sin. But on the other hand, the rest of verse 20, but if when you do well, when you are doing good, you're choosing to do the right thing and you're suffering, uh, if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. The same word as the previous verse, thankworthy. This is grace. This receives God's favor. It's a good testimony to unbelievers. Uh, oftentimes the suffering comes because you are doing the right thing, because you take a stand for Christ, because people know what you believe. One example in the news that many are probably familiar with was the Masterpiece Cake Shop years ago, where Jack Phillips refused to bake a cake for a same-sex couple, and he was mistreated for that stand, wasn't he? And then when the Supreme Court ruled in his favor, people came back and tried a different issue, they wanted him to make a cake that was one color on the outside and another color on the inside. Uh, there's an a example of being mistreated for the faith. And when you look at the, the direction the country is heading, at the speed of the moral revolution, God's people could be headed right for some unjust suffering. Couldn't they? Whether it's churches losing their tax-exempt status or getting a fine, uh, people losing their jobs or being canceled, uh, pastors being put in jail, maybe just anyone who decides to engage in what the world decides as hate speech. And there may be a time in the future, and we don't know how far down the road, when God's people face a lot of unjust suffering with no recourse. Uh, this passage is for those times, and we have to be prepared for that. But not just down the road, this passage is for today. When somebody mocks you for uh, your faith, your, your stand on Scripture. Maybe sometimes when you're penalized for obeying the law and others don't follow the law and are seemingly rewarded. Maybe at work, here's a promotion and you miss out on it because you won't do something that's unethical. Anytime we endure unjust suffering, we have to look at the way God wants us to act. Being mindful of God, enduring it patiently, God expects us to do this, but how could we ever uphold such a high standard? 
especially if it happens over and over again, and it, it weighs on us all the time. Maybe it's the same person that you sit by in the office or you live down the road from, and constantly, over and over, they mistreat you for your faith. The passage continues to remind us that God doesn't leave us alone to face this, that we're not on our own in this area of suffering, that Christ has provided everything we need. And so Peter mentions first Christ's example in verse 21 when he says, even hereunto were ye called. Uh, And the hereunto means to this, uh, unto something, and he doesn't repeat it because he's mentioned it in the previous verses. You're called to suffering. You are called to suffer for the faith. Unto this you were called. This is part of your calling as believer. It's wrapped up in God's plan for your life. Jesus says that if we want to follow him, we have to take up our cross and mentally prepare that God's path involves suffering. When you get on a toll road, there's often many advantages you get to enjoy. Sometimes the speed is higher. You get to go a little faster. Sometimes the road is nicer because they put more work into that road. Sometimes there's service stations right off the side of the road, and they have everything you need in one stop, and they have clean bathrooms. You have all of these advantages, but then you also come up to the toll booth, don't you? And you can't drive along with a mindset, this is just not fair. I want all the benefits, but I don't want these tolls. It's part of the package, isn't it? It's not not a perfect analogy, but the Christian life, part of the package is suffering. There are imminent blessings that come from salvation. You have the Spirit who walks with you throughout each day. You have the advantage of God's Word. You can go right to God in prayer. You have the hope of eternity. But part of the Christian life is also suffering, and it's intertwined. And we can't have a mindset that expects all of the benefits and then crosses our fingers and hopes we will avoid all the suffering and just live a wonderful life. Suffering is part of the Christian life, and that's why Peter says, you were called to this. That is part of the calling, is to endure suffering. And in verse 21, he continues, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Christ suffered. He knows what suffering is like. You think about the cross. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed and mocked. Christ knows what it's like to have lies told about him. He knows what it's like to be physically mistreated. And he left us, this word says, an example. And that particular word uh, was used also in the schoolroom to describe something that the instructor would write on the board for the students to copy. Imagine an elementary teacher who writes letters very carefully up on the board as an example. And the students are supposed to, and I'm sure they rarely do, but they're supposed to follow the example, each stroke, to make the letters turn out the same as the teachers. That's the example that Christ has provided. He, he has given what we need in, in order to follow the same path. And then Peter goes into detail about how Christ did that. Uh, he refused to give in to sinful responses. And this is verse 22 into verse 23. 
who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Let's consider each of these. But first, if you would, hold, hold your place here. We're going to go back and forth between two passages because Peter quotes from Isaiah 53. And if you'd like, you can turn there and see. And uh, we're going to go here four or five times because that's how often he quotes from this passage in Isaiah 53. Uh, in this, in the end of 1 Peter 2. Uh, here's the first one. And he doesn't do it in order. He doesn't follow uh, Isaiah 53 uh, in the order it appears. But uh, this first quote is in Isaiah 53, 9. He made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. And here it is. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Back to 1 Peter uh, 2, 22. Who did no sin... Neither was guile found in his mouth. So the first part of that, he, he never sinned. He, he was the lamb without blemish and without spot, uh, chapter 1 says, particularly when he was uh, mistreated. And all of the next examples then in verses 22 and 23 have to do with speech. And I think that's interesting because our natural temptation when we face suffering is probably not to hit somebody in the face. Maybe, perhaps. But for most of us, the first response is going to come off of our tongue, isn't it? And so all of these have to do with speech in the face of suffering. Uh, he, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Guile is deceit or ma manipulation, twisting the truth to, to try to get out of trouble. Uh, there was none of it found, and that idea has the idea that uh, people were looking to find it. Uh, when he was on trial, they were trying to trip him up. They were trying to trap him. And nothing untrue came out of his mouth. Peter, on the other hand, who was present during Christ's trial, and somebody asked him if he knew Christ, what came out of his mouth? Deceit, didn't it? He knows this firsthand, that this is a temptation for God's people. That here is potential suffering and it, you're right in the face of it, and there's a strong temptation to twist the truth to avoid the suffering. And that's what Peter did, and then felt the guilt of that. Peter says, follow, not my example, follow Christ's example of no deceit when you're facing suffering. God's people can face a similar temptation, trying to make Christianity palatable to the world. Uh, churches and denominations do this all the time. Maybe it doesn't go over too well with people that God is a God who would allow people to experience eternal judgment. And since people don't like that, we'll just water that truth down a little bit. We won't talk about it. We won't emphasize it. We'll just focus on God's mercy. That, that's not what God's truth says. Or maybe you look at what God's expectations are for women in the home and in the church. And in our world, that seems outdated and misogynistic. So we'll just back off. We'll change God's word a little bit. We'll reinterpret it in order not to face pressure or ridicule from others. But not just churches. As individuals, this is a temptation uh, here to say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not, I'm not weird. I'm not different. I'm not one of those strange people. I'm like everybody else, just also a Christian. And the Lord says, no, the, you, be honest with what you believe. Don't twist the truth. Don't water down the truth. 
no guile found in his mouth. Uh, the second, go, this is going into verse 23 now. Again, related to speech. What did Christ not do? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. And reviling here is being slandered, having vicious words thrown at you. So somebody says something vicious towards you, and our natural temptation is, what do we want to do? Give them a piece of our mind, right? Uh, get the last word in. Uh, we, we can't not respond, or it looks like we've lost the argument, doesn't it? This, this is particularly bad on the internet. You put something out there, and somebody attacks you for it, and you can't just leave it there. You've got to respond and have the last word in. Our culture's mentality is, don't be a pushover. Don't let people walk all over you. You've got to stand up for yourself. But God says, not when standing up for yourself involves words that displease the Lord and attitudes that displease the Lord. Uh, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And we've, we know uh, from the story in the Gospels, he largely did that by keeping his mouth closed. And perhaps that's the example that Peter encourages us to follow when we face suffering. Uh, if you still have your finger in Isaiah 53, you see this part <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in verse 7. Uh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. He, he opened not his mouth. He didn't say anything uh, that would displease the Lord. Uh, the second part of verse 23, back in 1 Peter 2, when he suffered, he threatened not. He faced genuine suffering. He was struck in the face, crowned with thorns, scourged, forced to bear the cross up the hill. His hands and feet were nailed to the cross, and he was tortured to death. And, and all of that, you don't find a place where he turned around and he said, you just wait and see what God does to you. Or... I could crush you with one finger. Christ never threatens. He, he never promises revenge. That's the example Peter wants us to follow. Not that we look at somebody and say, you'll get what's coming to you, and I, I will rejoice in it when I see it happen, but that we endure suffering as an example to others and committing our situation to the Lord. And Christ, not only did he not threaten revenge, but he died on the cross to make salvation available to everybody, and that included the people who were actively persecuting him, didn't it? Now, we can't provide salvation to people, obviously, but we can do what Romans 20, uh, 12 says, bless those who persecute you. If your enemy hungers, what do you do? You feed them. You, you don't be overcome with evil, but you overcome evil with good. Or in the Gospels, you pray for your enemies, you love them, uh, and uh, provides opportunity to share the Gospel. Finally, the end of verse 23, here in this section, uh, he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So Christ committed himself to God the Father, who judges righteously. He entrusted the situation to God. Committed here is, um, it, interestingly, the same word that's translated betrayed, uh, in other parts of Scripture, when you betray someone, you hand them over. Here, what Christ is doing is handing over to God the situation, the people who are treating him wrongly, and he's committing the situation to God and trusting that God judges 
righteously. God is going to do the right thing, even if it's not today, even if it's not in my lifetime. God is going to do the right thing. And we can imagine that involves a lot of prayer. It sounds like, God, I give this to you because I I can't endure it on my own, and I don't know how long it's going to last, but I know that you will do the right thing, and you know best. Our tendency, and we see this a lot, is that we really wish God would deal with wicked people right now. We read about them in the news. We watch the things that they do, especially people that have a lot of power and influence. So when we're talking about congressmen and women and senators and, and people who are making decisions that shake their fist in God's face and they're trying to push their agenda on the whole country. And we can think, God, what, what are you, I mean, I, I, can't you like send a disease and wipe somebody out or just take them early? There could be a car wreck. Can't you deal with this situation? And we want God to judge. But God knows the right time, doesn't he? If you were in the first century, you very likely would think, God, there's somebody who's really persecuting the church. And if you would just take them out, everybody would have a little less suffering. And if God had done that, you wouldn't have the Apostle Paul, would you? And all the books of the Bible that he wrote. God knows what he's doing. God allows his people to face suffering, and we would wish that God would work now, but God has a plan, and he fulfills his plan in his own timing. Verses 21 to 23, then, are Christ's example, but an example is not enough. We need more than that, and many, many denominations, liberal denominations, they will teach that Christ is an example to follow, but they will stop there. And that is not enough because it's not the gospel. We need more than an example. We need what Christ did for us on the cross. And that we see in these last two verses, verses 24 and 25. Uh, When first Peter says, uh, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Uh, His own self, that's important. He did it himself. Nobody helped him, including you. You didn't do any part in bearing your own sin. He bore your sins. And that word means to bring up a sacrifice. It's used when Abraham brings Isaac up to the altar. Priests would carry sacrifices up to the altar. But even more than that, Christ carried the sacrifice up and then he became the sacrifice and he bore the sin on himself. And he's acting both as the priest and as the sacrifice. And Isaiah 53 verse 12 describes this if you're still there. Uh, right at the end, I won't read the whole verse, but the last phrase of Isaiah 53, 12 says, he bare the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Uh, He did this, as Peter says, in his own body, reminding us of his humanity. He did it on the tree. And the tree is used a couple times in the New Testament, and it's typically referring back to an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21, that describes a criminal hanging on a tree. And there's a lot of shame involved in that. Uh, God says there in Deuteronomy 21, he that's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. That This is the death of a criminal. And so when you see a tree, it's often just bringing that idea up that Christ was uh, crucified as a common criminal. He bore our sins on the tree uh, 
for a purpose, that we being dead to sins should live to righteousness. To be dead to sins is to be cut off from them. A sin has no more power over you. When we sing this in uh, um, the song, um, And Can It Be? My chains fell off. My heart was free. This picture of sin no longer having power over us, we can still give in to sin. We can choose to go back in the prison, but nothing constrains us to do so. Uh, We are dead to sin, and we can live to righteousness. We can submit to God and live the way God wants us to live. The last phrase there in verse 24, by whose stripes you were healed. Yet another one from Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Uh, the, the wounds of Christ, think of the scourging that he endured. That's what provided the spiritual healing that you and I need. And th- this is passive. You're not the one doing the healing. You are being healed by what Christ has done on the cross. Uh, and by the way, uh, Peter took, the Old Testament says, by his stripes we are healed. Uh, Peter took and he changed a word in that to say, by his stripes you are healed. And there's no concern there because Peter is writing under inspiration. So under inspiration of the Spirit, the Lord decided to make that even more personal. Not just we, all of us, but you personally. Uh, because of what Christ has done for you, you have found spiritual healing. And the last verse here reminds us of the change that God has made in our lives. You were as sheep going astray. This is the last reference to Isaiah 53 uh, when he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, Peter obviously has this passage heavily in mind because he quotes from it a number of times. Uh, Sheep is not a compliment for God's people. Uh, Sheep are not very intelligent. They wander off. Uh, They cannot provide for themselves in any sense. They're hopeless. Uh, We were as sheep going astray, but now we are returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And returned here and many times in Scripture doesn't mean that you were with God, now you're separated. Uh, It just means that you have changed your course. You have made a full turnaround from the direction you were going, and you have turned towards the Lord from the wrong path. A 180-degree turn. You've returned to the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Uh, The shepherd, God as a shepherd, provides and feeds and leads us. As an overseer, uh, that's the same word as bishop, somebody who watches over, inspects, cares for, and guards his people. And God does all of that for us. And so it's not just the example, but these last two verses are telling us Christ provided the atonement on the cross. And if you didn't have that, you would have no hope for suffering because you can't endure suffering in your own strength. You can do it perhaps for a short time. You can't continue on enduring suffering without the power of the gospel and the Lord changing your life. As you think, if you endure suffering, you've got the Spirit indwelling you. Even if somebody takes your Bible away, you have the Spirit indwelling you and reminding you of truth that God has told you before in His Word. 
You have access to God through prayer that no one can ever strip away from you, even in the face of immense suffering. And so the, the, the atonement that Christ has provided is what gives the impetus or the strength to endure suffering. When you read through Acts, Acts is full of examples of suffering. James was beheaded. Uh, Peter was imprisoned. Paul was imprisoned. Church history tells us that all the apostles, with the exception of John, uh, faced martyrdom. God's plan for you and me includes unjust suffering. And it may not be too severe now, but we still face it. Maybe when somebody ridicules you for wasting every Sunday going to that church building with those people, couldn't you get a lot more done if you had 52 extra days this year to do projects around the house or work more hours? And, and God says, even if people ridicule you, Follow Christ's example and ask for God's help to maintain a godly testimony. Or when you're told that your views are bigoted and backwards and that really if you, if you just allow for other interpretations of the Bible, you can be fine with a lot of what the world says. And people make fun of you. Follow the example of Christ. When you're condemned for not being tolerant of other religions or, or for using uh, so-called hate speech, follow Christ's example, remember what Christ has done for you, and he can provide the help that we need. And he may use that, as the morning passage said, to impact others. You look through church history. When persecution came to the church, it did two things. First, it weeded out people who weren't genuinely Christians. They didn't want to endure the suffering. But second, the gospel spread like wildfire sometimes. Because you watch somebody who's willing to burn at the stake because of what Christ has done for them, and people think, maybe this is real. Maybe I need to look into this. And sometimes more people turn to Christ than would have if the suffering had never come. Christ provides the example. Christ provides the atonement. And we need His grace in that whatever we're facing in your particular situation to endure suffering that's unjust with a testimony that might, God might use to win others to Him. Let's close in prayer tonight and ask for God's grace in this area. Lord, we thank You that You have done so much for us, that You bore our sins on the tree. You provide spiritual healing through what you've done for us. We would be lost and hopeless without the cross. And you set an example for us. You showed us. You didn't just tell us in your word, but you showed us how to endure suffering. And we pray that as we experience it, and most of us now, if we experience suffering is on a small scale, and yet even that can be a challenge and difficult We pray you would give us grace to follow your example, to rely on your word, uh, to remember um, what you've done for us. And down the road, Lord, if you allow suffering to come to the church uh, that is more than we've experienced in the last decades and centuries, we pray that we would turn back to passages like this and recall uh, that this is part of what we're called to, uh, that you've given everything we need, you've provided the strength and the grace we need to endure and even uh, to be a testimony to others of the faith. And we ask for your grace and the burdens we carry now and the challenges that we're facing. We pray that we would 
cast all of our cares upon you day after day and moment after moment. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.